to the newest episode of penpodcast.com. I'm your host, Matthew Harms, founder of Pen for Hire, where we offer premier ghostwriting and author coaching services. Also the creators of the Pen Podcast, where we sit with authors, writers, writing industry professionals, subject matter experts, and all around interesting people. Today, we are joined by a past guest and a sponsor, great friend of the Pen Podcast, Michelle Kwasanowski. How are you, Michelle? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I think it's been like, what, over a year since we've had you on the show? Yeah, because my first book had just come out, and then I'm like finishing up book three right now in the series. Wow. It's yeah. amazing what happens in the in the passage of time. It's been a busy pandemic, so yeah, <laughs> lots of time to write. So. You know, I, I don't want to go that road, but now that things have opened up more, I find myself less and less productive because people are expecting my in-person time, and I'm like, what is this? You got to go to soccer games and school meetings. It's like way too much, you know. I mean, I wasn't a fan of homeschooling, but at least I was at home in my sweats and I could write. So, you know, I missed the sports. So the kids stuff, not so bad. It's all the professional things. Like now people actually want you to attend in-person networking events. And I'm like, why? We were doing just fine on Zoom. <laughs> I was just as productive in my sweats. Thank you. And the three hours I wasn't spending in traffic and looking for parking to get there, I could yeah. get some writing done. The traffic's a nightmare because it's fully hit in LA now. Cause like even like probably the first six months after things opened up, going to LA was no problem because everyone was still like not on the roads. Now it takes twice as long. I think they've all forgotten how to drive. So it takes me now to go see my grandma up in LA. It takes me like an hour and a half. It used to take me 50 minutes. So nightmare. I'll let you in on a secret. They didn't forget how to drive. You just forgot how bad their driving was. That could be. That could be. <laughs> you haven't had to deal with it. So, Michelle, for those who didn't catch our last episode, if you'd be so kind, give everyone a little bit of a recap on yourself, your first book, and then we'll dive into how yeah. you managed to be so productive from then to now. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I used to work in entertainment for about 15 years. I started out in movies, and then I transitioned to television, um, like Discovery, the Learning Channel, that sort of thing. And then I, when I had a baby, I stopped working because the hours didn't really mesh with family life. For me, I know a lot of people do it, they make it work, but for it, it didn't work out for us. So um, when our baby was six months old, I was like a little bored. So I was used to working 12, 14 more hours a day. So uh, a friend suggested I start writing because I had been doing a little bit of writing before I'd gotten pregnant, but nothing had ever gone anywhere. And so I started writing um, what turned out to be the first book in the series, Rising Star. I thought it was all going to be one book. And I didn't realize until I was in it that that would be like War and Peace. It would be super long. So I had to break it up. So the original book was called The Rise and Fall of Danny Trueheart. And then I had to come up with the different book titles um, as I went along, realizing it wasn't going to work into one book. And that's it. How far into that first book were you before you realized, like, wait a second, this is never going to wrap up in? Probably like 100 pages. I was like, oh, I have a long way to go if I'm going to get there. And I just realized that it wasn't going to work. And that was before I'd even delved into the whole publishing world and word counts and everything else, too. I just realized, like as a writer and a reader, it was just going to be too overwhelming to read about this teenager's journey in like a thousand page saga. It, it, it's not a Hobbit or a Lord of the Rings situation. It was too, too much. So I broke it down. Got it. And now you have an interesting, not that other authors don't, but an interesting time constraint because you're writing about a very specific period in this teenager's life, right? Yes. So the series is very compact and people ask me that because they, oh, so how long is it over the span of her life? It is like three years. Which again is something that as I, when I started out, I didn't, you know, when you start out with an idea, everything's just like, you know, unicorns and clouds and you don't really think about it. 
And as I got towards the end of book one, and I was imagining book two, so book one is rising star, book two is burning bright, and book three is falling star. So you kind of know by the titles, something's going to happen. She's rising, then she's falling, and there's like brightness in the middle, but you don't really know what. And, um, but I realized that ha that that timeline would have to be a little bit more compact because I didn't want to make it, I didn't want it to be 25 at the end of the series. I feel like writing YA, it's so important to keep it in that YA age group because um, I think teens deserve a series directed at them in their timeline because they can't really relate to things that are happening to a 21 year old because they haven't experienced that yet. And it's not gonna happen for several years. I think when you're 14, you're reading about an 18 year old, that's kind of within your grasp, but you're 14 reading about a 21 year old, that's kind of so far out of your grasp, you lose interest. That's just my take. You know, and that's an intuitive way to go into it because there is that shift and you could very well alienate your reader base if you now take this YA into a more adult level and now this character they've grown attached to, they can't really relate to anymore. Well, when I was um, querying to try and get an agent, and as anyone who's ever done that knows, that's just a heartbreaking process. So I was sending out queries and the first seven, I got nothing. And then like the second batch, I started getting some um, feedback because not everyone even answers you. So, but I was getting feedback and they're like, I'm not connecting. I'm not interested or the voice isn't connecting with me. And I was like still new to this whole thing and not, I'm not a trained writer by any profession at all. I'm just an avid reader. So I was like, well, what does that mean? And it wasn't until one agent took the time. Now, granted, she rejected me repeatedly and is not my current agent, but took the time to literally give me a roadmap. She was intrigued by the idea. She liked my story. And she said, this is what I want to see. And you can query again. So I did. And she, what she said, she wanted to, she wasn't relating because the third person in YA doesn't hit with a young adults. They want it to be about them. They want to hear it, I, 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 not she, she, she. And I was, I was writing in third person past tense. They said, bring it, for, bring it present tense, bring it first person. And then I had adult perspective and they said, pull everything out. The agent said, it doesn't work. It's teens only want to hear about what they're going through. They don't care what's happening with the mom or the agent or the whatever. And that was heartbreaking because all this backstory got pulled out. But that's what ended up getting me my fabulous agent now. It, it was amazing because she literally gave me a road wrap and it was heartbreaking to make those um, cuts and edits. But gosh, why am I going to argue with an agent who's professional been doing this for years? What is What do I know compared to her? And it was like kind of taking my ego and my investment and in what I saw happening and trusting that someone who is into the selling books for a living, trusting their advice. And that was really, really hard to do. But my God, I got an agent and I got, you know, two books working on my third. So thank you for listening to the penpodcast.com created by Pen for Hire. Thanks to technology, authors are now able to reach their readers in new ways. Letting readers know who you really are, why you wrote the book, and that you welcome their questions and comments goes a long way to building a fan base. Outside of social media, podcasts, radio, television, newspaper, and magazine interviews reach millions of people every day. How can you get featured in more of these media channels? Working with a public relations specialist will open more doors than you ever thought possible. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get a free consultation today.
Now back to the interview. As you mentioned, almost anyone who's ever attempted to get their work out there knows what a heartbreaking and just gut-wrenching process that is. So it really says something, to me anyway, about your the underlying quality of your message or your concept that a literary agent would take the time to give you this coaching, invaluable coaching and guidance, because most of them won't even return your query. Yeah. <laughs> she read three drafts, which I couldn't believe. And again, she was like, it's still not connecting because she wanted to see different things. And again, like it's like finding a mate. Everyone wants something really different and specific. So that's why when you do find an agent, they more than likely will be competing with your um, with what you're writing and what your message is, because they read how many scripts a day? Hundreds? 50, whatever it is, but they've seen everything and they're just looking for that one connection. And that's all it takes. So just, I got rejected an embarrassing, like it was, I think 131 times. That's not embarrassing. So, but you're, and you're supposed to stop, I guess at 80. And I'm like, 80, I'm going to keep going. So, but it's finding that one agent who's like, I can sell this and I'll get it. And that makes it worth all the heartache. Just like when you find your mate or whatever it is, your perfect house, whatever, fill in that blank for you. But that's what makes it all worth it. Yeah, I really I love that dedication. Um, and I'm curious because I've I've written fiction, I've written nonfiction, and at least for me, first person is not the easiest thing to write, especially when you're writing about a character that has very little in common with you. I mean, I've started my own autobiography and fictionalized it, and I still wrote it in third person. Yeah. Um, it's so, I don't know why it is. I'm curious to know how you went about doing that, especially having already written it in third person. Well, the funny part is, is that just think about all the things you write in third person. You can get away with, oh, she walked here and did this or whatever. And then in first person, you're like, well, they don't care that I'm. she's doing this and doing that because it's me. And I, I don't think like, oh, I'm walking and I'm picking this up. It, it, was a, it was a crash course. And I ended up reading a couple, just I would pick chapters of books off my shelves, just pull open a chapter and read it just to get the flow of, what it was first person and third person. And it wasn't until the agent had mentioned this that I started noticing how many books I read are first person versus third person. And it's um, it's crazy because I still feel that I read a lot of third person, but when like this agent was said, no, first person is the way to go. It's the most popular genre. And I was like, okay. So whether that was her opinion or whether that was actually a fact, her advice did get me over that. But it was like I had to shut down everything. And for like a good like three months, I had to go back in and rip everything out. And then, you know, it was heartbreaking. But I did keep all the research and I am actually considering doing a prequel. Because if you know anything about my series, there's a stage mom. There's a, a guardian who used to be a former pop star in a boys band in the 80s. And then a manager who had a really bad history of how he manages acts. And he is kind of turning over a new leaf with Danny because this is his last chance before he just completely goes into oblivion. So, cause he made some bad choices. So I, I have backstory for all of these adult characters. And so I want to do a series where they are in um, uh, as teenagers and how their journey started. Like, how do you become a stage mom? Like, where does that happen? You know? So that kind of thing. So I've been, I've, it's, it's for, based on all the research. I haven't really told anyone yet about that. So little surprise reveal, but that's something that I want to do because I think that would be a really interesting um, perspective. I agree. And I can tell we, we very much have similar styles because almost all of my books start out as one thing. And then next thing I know, I'm like, that person could have their own book and that person could have their own book. Right yeah. now I've got 14 books that I don't have time to write. 
Are you an outliner or are you like just a pantser where you just fly by the seat of your pants? I'm a hybrid. So everything starts with like a concept uh-huh. and then I'll just start writing a random character or a random scene. Yeah. And that'll go maybe for two or three scenes at best. And then I'm like, okay, what the heck am I going to do with this now? And then I'll move into, into outlining mode. But I'm big on giving everyone a lot of backstory, which is why I wind up with all of these characters who can become their own books. So I'd love to know for you, how were you able to extract all of their backstories from these books? Like what was there? How did you still make them integral without having... It, it literally was like a, I had, I have two people who helped me. They're my beta readers. I have my one friend, Jimmy, who I used to work with at, in television. He was in my cubicle next to me and he would, he was in, in, in post-production. And so he was, um, he was encouraging me to write. He's like, you should just do it. So he is very good with English grammar, which I am not. I almost failed my seventh grade English grammar class. So I need help with my editing. So he reads my books. And then my sister is, she's an avid reader just like me. And so she knows what she likes and doesn't like what have you. And so between the two of them, I would bounce ideas off of them. And um, I would I would just shave down characters like in and they they read my books almost as much as I have. My sister has read my first book, I think, like 10 times and Jimmy's like 15 times. So and then they would just go through and they're like, I miss this or, you know, yeah, I don't I think you could take this out. I think it's not necessary because I would go in with like their first read of the revision. I would just let them read it. But then I would go in with pointed questions like, what about this? What about that? And it was just, it's interesting because it's refreshing because you're not, they're not in it like I am trapped, like feeling like desperate and like anxious and, you know, time crunch. So their perspective was completely different about what was important and what wasn't important and things that I was clinging to and I really needed it to be in there. They're like, that doesn't make any difference to us. Just pull it. And, you know, when you're, you know, if you're doing, I don't know if you overwrite or not. I, I overwrite, I'm getting better. I, I tend to overwrite because again, I feel I fell out a lot. So it is hard to let go of those precious, insightful moments that you're convinced is just going to make it like Pulitzer Prize winning, whatever, YA novel, because that's ever happened. But, um, you know, it's just you you want that in there. But again, you have to let go of the ego and what's best for the reader. What's is it going to trip them up when they're reading? You know, is it going to trip up their flow? Is it, you know, making the story too long? That kind of thing. And. I mean, you're shining a light on one of the most important things, not just in writing, really in anything in life that you want to master, but you are incredibly open to feedback. You're actively seeking feedback and you're not one to sit there and say, well, no, it's my way or the highway. Yeah, I feel for me, I feel like if um, if I knew what I was doing and I was that good at it, I would already be making money at it. So I do trust. It's not like I take every piece of criticism as gold and I act on it. You really have to measure the what you're hearing, the the intention of what you're hearing. Because, you know, there are some people like, especially like if you're querying, you know, agents are tired. They are people too who have kids and husbands and wives and everything else too. You don't know if you're getting residue from their personal life or they're being stressed or what, whatever it is, or maybe the topic doesn't hit with them. So you really need to, to make sure that you're confident in your work and then be open, but not just fully trust everything that you're hearing because at the end of the day it is your piece of work but i do feel like you need to be open to it because i think collaboration can make almost anything better and oh, yeah. you can appeal to as an audience as possible so your perspective might exclude other audiences so you might want to open that up you know the key is very much like you just said is not 
everyone's going to have an opinion, right? And if you ask a hundred people, you may get a hundred different pieces of feedback. Yeah. That doesn't mean you run and incorporate all a hundred, but yeah. if five people read your book and five people give you the same exact piece of feedback about something not working or something, that's probably when you should pay attention. And like when I, when I was querying, I, once I heard like one or two things about the voice of my book, they weren't connecting with the voice. It wasn't, something wasn't meshing. It wasn't until like the seventh person I was like, okay, now this is a thing because I am hearing this repeatedly. So now let's look at it. But I did give it a little bit. I probably could have done a little bit sooner. I did give it a little bit though, just to make sure. That is, yes, that's exactly what I meant. Thank you for tuning in to the Pen Podcast produced by Pen for Hire. Do you struggle with finding affordable and reliable proofreaders? Are you tired of the AI software that doesn't always understand human language? Pen for Hire has an extensive network of professionals we can refer you to to help. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get your free consultation today. And now back to the interview. And to speak to overwriting, one of the things we, we coach all of our clients on, and I even do myself, is overwriting, yeah. not censoring yourself. Because the, because the alternative to overwriting is censorship. Uh-huh. If you start saying, oh, I shouldn't say this, or maybe that's not the right thing to say, you're limiting the creativity. It's better to get it out while it's there. You can always eliminate it later. Yeah. But once that's- you miss the opportunity to write it, it's very hard to go back and do it. Yeah, that's a great way of seeing it because now I feel better about my overwriting. And I have gotten better. The first book I overwrote like 80,000 words. Now I'm just like, I think I had 17. So I, I'm getting closer to not crazy overwriting. But um, but yeah, it is, it is good because I do feel like what if, because I am more of a pantser than an outliner. And there's sometimes like a key like idea or plot twist comes to me. And I was like, oh, what if I hadn't thought of that? Holy, because that's the scary part about not outlining is that you are always convinced that if you didn't think that thought, you would have missed a key plot and your book would be a failure. At least I do. So um, it's nice to have that freedom where I don't have to, because I don't limit myself to writing like certain number of pages or words a day. I just kind of go for a time, like two or three hours a day or like four hours, how much time I have. And that's what I do. I love that you said that as well, because that's my number one recommendation for people struggling to write is don't hold yourself to crazy realistic goals. Authors too many times here are the authors saying, oh, I write 5,000 words a day or you know, the, the top 10 best-selling authors. This is how many words they write. You can't hold yourself to that standard. All you can do is commit the time yeah. and whatever you get done, you get done as long yeah. as you put in that time. Yeah, it could be one <laughs> paragraph or it could be like a couple pages, but yeah, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the again because it's a deadline and i feel like with creativity i don't always do well with deadlines so yeah you probably have some days where you sit down at your computer and you can write five pages in the first hour and there's other days where that four hours is spent like rewriting the same sentence over and over and over exactly yeah that's true that's great advice it's great advice thank you that was your advice so i'm just uh highlighting it <laughs> well knowing that you as a professional are doing it too because again i I'm just someone out here. I'm not trained. So I just am out here learning as I go. So hearing that that is actually something that you advise your client to me means a lot because it means like, okay, I'm on the right path. I don't have to worry about that, that there's a better way. So it's okay. And that's the whole reason we started Pen for Hire is most, I don't think you really need to be trained to be a great writer. I think as long as you're coachable, obviously, yes, you have to be able to string some words together and in a somewhat decent fashion, but you don't need a, a PhD in writing yeah. to be a, a best-selling author. 
you really just need to master the art of storytelling. It is. And it's showing up. And I do think that reading, that's like how I feel like I got trained because I've been a reader since a very young age. And growing up, like my mom's sister and I, we would swap books all the time. So I'd read like, you know, like two or three books in a week, you know, during the, you know, during the summer. And to me, that's how you learn like what you like in a story, what you don't like in a story, what works and what doesn't. Look, if I'm hiring a business consultant and then my choice is the guy with a PhD in business management from Wharton um, straight out of college or a guy with a high school diploma who's worth a billion dollars because of the companies he's built, I'm going to take the guy with the high school diploma. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah it's true. It's true. I just think when you're putting yourself out there, you feel that everyone has all of this other stuff. And I think if you look at your social media, what you do as a writer to promote yourself, it can really mess with your head. So it's nice to hear those things uh, from another professional. So yeah, that. absolutely. Your own unique voice is what makes you resonate with your readers. Not everyone is going to be your ideal reader and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Once you know who they are and you, and you write for them and yourself, yeah. the rest is, uh, is the easy part. Yeah, that's true. Totally true. So when is book three coming out? So um, I'm still working on it now. So my publisher hasn't seen it yet, but I'm that's the one I'm cutting down. I think as of when I stopped yesterday, I think I have like either 12 or 13,000 left to cut. And I've got like, I've got like my pull the ripcord cuts, which I've already gone through, like the stuff I really want to keep, but I could let go. They're all redlined and ready to go. So I'm just trying to go line by line and clean up everything before I do that. So I can meet it by the end of next week, but I just, um, I'm trying to keep all of my red line items, which but we'll see, you know. And now is that, is that your deadline, the end of next week? Um, it is, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to get it out as quickly as possible. Normally I get my books out much earlier in the year, but this last book was really hard to write because it's, it's, I'm sad to say goodbye to my characters. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from readers about how they want the series to end. Like, don't, I'd be really upset if you do this or you'd better not do that. And that gets in your head because I have a thing in my head. I've had it since, you know, the beginning of the series. And some of the stuff people were saying they did want to see might or might not be happening. And it really like messed with my head. It kept it, it, I had trouble finishing this last book because I wanted to make sure I was being true to the story, but also, you know, the pressure of trying to keep readers happy because I love my readers. I don't want to, you know, piss them off. But it was, so that was a little bit of a struggle as an author trying to figure out what to, what to stay true to. So I ended up staying true to my original vision with some tweaks. You know, that is such a good highlight of the pros and cons of the of authors being more accessible to their readers than ever before, right? Because it's, it's a great way to be relevant, to relate, to make more book sales when people know that you respond, that you take their feedback into consideration. But it can also be dangerous because now if you've got 50% of your readers saying, I want it to end this way. And 50% of your readers saying, I want it to end this way. Even if you agree with one side, it's like you're alienating half of them. Yeah. It, and it, it did mess with my head for a little bit because the first two books, I mean, the first book, yes, it took me seven years to write because that was, I was still learning. But the second book I wrote in like, I think like 18 months or a little under two years, much quicker. And this book calendar wise, it, it, I was even less than that, but it still was like, it was, I could have finished sooner, but I just couldn't, like, I was waffling on a couple of main points and I didn't, I was scared to commit one way or another. And then it's sad. I've been with these characters forever. I'm really sad to see them go, so. And I know you you mentioned possibly going into some backstories on some of the other characters. Yeah. 
and you don't have to give this away if you know it becomes impossible based on your ending. But do you ever foresee somewhere down the road bringing Danny back? I absolutely do, because I because again, as a mom, I always think being a mom is because there's so many things that are just and you understand you're a parent too. Just the getting into the life of being a kid and not being young, like going out, drinking all the time and doing all the fun stuff I did in my 20s. Like sometimes you miss that. And I and I do think it would be funny to see this character. We got to we got to know her as a teenager and then to see like coming back when she's in like her mid 30s or something like that. That is something I've been toying with. I have a couple different things I'm trying that are like lined up trying to write. Just like you said, I've got all these different things. I'm trying to manage my time with, but I do I do see that happening in a few years is coming back to visit her. Cause I do think she'd be a fun adult to hang out with. And then at that point for you, would that mean kind of genre switching and moving to a more adult audience? Or if you I put do. it up late enough, you could always go back to your younger readers who are now older. Yes, I do. Th I do think that. And there, cause one of my next series that I, that I, I had started to write it as a TV show and it got pitched. It almost got picked up as a telenovela and then they changed their mind. So I know there's a market for it, but that is decidedly a, a book for adults. It's not a book for teens. So that would be a genre switch as well. So I do feel, because some of my authors I follow, they bounce between a couple different, like young, they have a couple young adult books and they have adult, then they have regular contemporary reading for adult. So I do kind of see myself going back and forth like that. Cause I read both books and, um, I think there's value to both writing. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> so if you had a hazard a guess for those who are who are anxiously awaiting picking up the new book, will it be available by the end of this year? Um, I don't I don't know. I would I that would be awesome. I just don't know yet because I haven't even sent it out to my agent yet. So I okay. just don't know what the what the timeline is at all. But um I would love to see it out, you know, whenever as soon as possible because I think it would be It'd be nice to wrap up that series in a nice little bow with everything, you know, together in a timely manner. So we'll see. So for those who've already read book one and two, make sure you read it again while you're waiting for book three. Um, for those who haven't, Michelle, where can people, um, I would imagine everywhere books are sold, but how can they pick up Rising Star and Burning Bright? Both books are available. Actually, if you're in Orange County, I just had my first book signing at Barnes & Noble, and that was a treat. So there's still, still some fine copies available at the Barnes Noble and Lisa Viejo. So, but you can get it at Target, Amazon, you know, on BookBub, on IndieBound, on um, I, uh, you can get it on um, in the uh, Apple Store. It's on uh, the, the audiobooks there and the eBooks there. You can get it anywhere. So, um, and it's online everywhere, and it's in some bookstores. It's also in some libraries. I'm in, I think, in like 24 libraries now across the country. So yeah, you don't even need to pay if you don't want to. You can just get it at your library. That is incredible. Um, and if people wanted to follow you on social media, reach out to you with questions, feedback, comments, how can they do that? On Instagram and TikTok, it's author.michellequaz, K-W-A-S, and Michelle with one L. And on Twitter, it's at Michelle Quaz. And on Facebook, it's Michelle Kwasniewski. Fantastic. Uh, Michelle, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, um, getting inspiration from your process. The amount you've been able to get done in the last couple of years, putting it out a three book trilogy is just, uh, it's really impressive. And I think that everyone that's listening or watching can definitely learn something from your, your dedication and your resolve. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's great. It's been a lot of fun to share my journey with everyone. Cause I know a lot of people just like me 
just uh, nobody just trying to start out and make something. So definitely um, I want to encourage everyone. There's room for everyone up here. So I love it. Perfect. For everyone listening at home, you just spent this time with Matt Harms and Michelle Kwasanuski. Please support our guest's work. Follow her on Instagram, Facebook, head over to wherever you buy your books. Um, pick them up if you've already read them. Leave a review. Reviews are one of the greatest things you can do for an author short of buying their book. Um, any questions, you can also always reach out to me, Matt, M-A-T-T, at penforhirenyc.com. We greatly appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you all in the next episode. Michelle, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Take care. You too. My pleasure. Bye.